everybody, welcome into show notes. Today's a little bit different for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm solo because 99 is under the weather. She picked up something at one of these random campground things that she goes to, festival, whatever. Or maybe she didn't, I don't know. I'm probably making that up, but she's not feeling well. And because she is ever so courteous, she did not want to bring that into our enclosed space. Now, if you're listening to this, there will be a video compliment to this as I am going to embark on a journey to try and record these, normally just for the pod, but on video as well. And if you're looking at me telling you this right now, then you already know what's happening. Anyway, this will be a weird experiment. Now, Substackers will have received a notification that we have officially migrated all of our content to unftr.com by now, and that we're launching a brand new newsletter to pull together all of the content that we've been producing under one roof. Now, if you've exchanged with us in the past, whether you've bought coffee from us or maybe you filled out a form, sent in a question or what have you, you're automatically enrolled in the newsletter. So you can easily opt out of the newsletter as well. Otherwise, I hope that you enjoy this resource and find it a useful way to cull through our work and to select the things that you're interested in. Could be a discount code for some coffee, a roundup of the week's YouTube videos, or links to the new essays. The headlines we read out loud and show notes, you name it. So here we are. It's going to be a little weird for me because you're going to see me reading a lot more, hence the glasses. And those of you that are just listening to this, I'm wearing glasses. I'll get used to it. We also dropped a couple of vignettes, by the way, on YouTube in an effort to really give the channel an identity. So please check that out. There's a new channel trailer for anyone who isn't yet subscribed. And we also put a little promo video together set to the music of the inimitable Tom McGovern. It's the Gilbert and Sullivan theme that we chose for that one. And it was inspired by Dan Garcia over on Facebook, who put together a great video for us on the Unfuckers at All channel. So grateful to you, uh, Dan, for the inspiration. And uh, you can check that out. If you're not a member yet of Unfuckers at All, curated by the great Bob Knudsen, then uh, please head over there on the Facebooks. If you're not on Facebook, never mind. All right, so let's get into headlines today before we get into show notes. The first one that I want to bring up is one that a number of the Unfuckers actually teased out on the Unfuckers at All and on our uh, regular Facebook page. A couple of people wrote in about it as well. And that is how a young Ben Barnes of Texas was invited on a trip by then Governor John Connolly and how that trip, according to Barnes, was designed to convince the Iranians through back channels to hold on to the hostages until after the 1980 election. So it's sort of a deathbed confession because Barnes himself is about 85 years old but also racked with guilt because he knows that Jimmy Carter is on his deathbed. In light of the four-part series that we wound up doing on Jimmy Carter, I thought it was apropos to share this as a number of the unfuckers did, just to kind of show that there's always a few sides to the story. Now, is this the official narrative, the official story? Was that trip designed to hold the hostages until Reagan was you know, in the hopes that it would help get Reagan elected? Probably. Was it effective? I'm not sure that it totally squares with the details because, you know, Iran is a, is a big player in this and it wasn't necessarily clear in my research of that era that something was going to happen prior to the election anyway. The Iranians were driving a very hard bargain. If anything, I think the question comes between whether or not this trip was successful. There's no question in my mind that that was the intent of the GOP, that they were trying to derail it because 
It was kind of an inhuman thing to do, and that sort of tracks with who the GOP was and has become since that time. But also, if it was a completely successful, so I'm not, I'm not, you know, questioning the credibility of it, but if it was a successful endeavor, I think that you would have seen the hostages maybe released prior to the inauguration. You know, there's still three months in between the negotiations uh, between the election and the hostages eventually being released. So who knows whether it had a an impact, but, you know, a little bit of credit to Barnes for coming out uh, at this late date and trying to at least set the record straight. Apparently, this wasn't his first attempt. He had actually been interviewed before, but I don't think it had reached the national consciousness because of uh, the state that Carter is in now compared to when he first released those details. So we have a link to the headline in the New York Times talking about this sort of uh, quasi-deathbed confession from Barnes. And uh, another thing that I want to bring everybody's attention to before we get into the general feedback is a new podcast, a new season, rather, of the podcast Drilled. Now, we've talked about this one before, and a few of the unfuckers have actually sent it into us saying that they love this show. And I have listened to it in the past because it's all about uh, climate change fossil fuel and all that. And it's it's an absolutely fantastic podcast. So I definitely recommend that for anybody who hasn't checked it out. Now, the new season is, and Drilled, by the way, is a true crime podcast about climate change hosted and reported by Amy Westervelt. Now, this new one is about discovering oil in Guyana in South America and whether oil delivers on the promise of economic freedom and mobility for the citizens as the oil and gas vultures descend. Well, I can give you a short answer to that story, but I'm really excited for this series. I haven't dug in yet, but knowing their prior work, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. But uh, the answer is typically and almost always no, unless you have a nationalized effort like you've found in, uh, let's say, Norway as an example. Uh, Venezuela is another example. State-run oil discoveries like that tend to have a better impact on the general economy. Now, Venezuela their sin was not diversifying once they found that oil. Guyana, Equatorial Guinea, some of the other nation states that have discovered oil that weren't necessarily uh, allowed to participate in it because they basically just privatized it right out of the gate and allowed American corporations or European corporations to come in and take control of them, tend not to fare as well. So what you see is kind of a cottage tourism industry almost built up around the, the closest city to the ports where the, where the oil drillers leave from. And there's a tiny economy that rings it, but most of it is for expats and for oil executives and for jobbers to come down through the lifespan of whatever a productive field might be. And then after that, pretty much a wrap. And a lot of those funds, whether it is in an immature economy, it doesn't necessarily have the, the best way to absorb those funds and work it through the system to create the right legal infrastructure, the right civil society infrastructures, all of the things that allow an economy to thrive off of the discovery of fossil fuel typically don't exist in areas that just discover it, whereas they hadn't built a mature infrastructure before that. So uh, very excited to look into that series. So those are the two things that uh, I'd love for everybody to check out this week. And now let's get into emails. By the way, if this whole video thing works out, if you're listening to this, I have gotten a quasi-commitment from 99 that we could continue this way, possibly. She'll be on mic, but off camera. So at least you can sort of see my reactions as she fucks with me throughout the entire thing. So there you go. Now, 
Let's get on to some specific feedback, as it were. First of all, from John H. and also Thomas H. And I have their permission to read these out uh, because it is a correction of sorts in the way that I framed something in the last episode. So I'm going to read John H.'s because it really strikes to the heart of it. So here we go. There seemed to be some confusion on the meaning of mark-to-market in this week's pod. Mark-to-market securities are valued at the current trading price of the security on the public markets, whereas the description at the start of the episode mentioning the term actually described that way that held-to-maturity securities are valued on a balance sheet. SBB's losses mostly came from having to reclassify a bunch of HTM assets as MTM assets once they could no longer pretend they would be able to hold them until maturity. So John is exactly right, and so is Thomas H. So the mistake that I made in the episode, which actually doesn't change the outcome, it was the order of things and the way that I position Mark to Market as a bad thing in the episode. Mark to Market is actually a good thing for society and can sometimes be a bad thing for the banks themselves. So the way that I framed it was that Mark to Market itself was not a good practice. Mark to market is a good practice. And it is something that allowed these things to be uncovered. What's interesting is that you can kind of do the math on these investments that are held to maturity on a balance sheet until they have to reclassify them in certain quarters and, and certainly by year end. So the math could have been done. The math wasn't necessarily a mystery, but the overarching point that both John and Thomas were making is that I need to be more careful in my word choice and make sure that I don't frame it as such. So I did fix that online. Uh, the episode is out there the way it is, the way it stands, but we corrected it in the comments on YouTube and I corrected it on the essay. So uh, John and Thomas, thank you for that. I appreciate you uh, checking in. And now let's go to a pod favorite, to Bobby McD, who says, I hate banks. I hate them because they're a bunch of teeth and bastards. Alfie is also a thieving bastard who stole my salami, that's his dog, who stole my salami sandwich last week. While both are driven by opportunism, an essential characteristic for survival, bankers are soulless, <clears throat> C words, whereas Alfie is a good boy. Ask 99. And the sandwich incident was my fault for leaving it where he could get to it. I also hate banks because they have hidden charges, which they don't disclose. I hate banks because I have to use one and they know it. Mostly I hate banks because the reckless behavior of bankers in Ireland during the Celtic Tiger years totally fucked us for a decade and means that most Irish millennials can't afford a home. Appreciate the international perspective and your choice words as always, Bobby McTee. Into some general feedback, we have Dan H. I totally agree that we're feeding into our own narrative that the only solution to rising inflation is increasing interest rates because we've done it before and it worked, even though it was a disaster. For most people, think about the Volcker tourniquet during the late 70s, early 80s. It's really all the Fed can do about the situation given the powers they have. I wonder if the calls to abolish the Fed are more nuanced with an argument like, let's have an electable body that has access to all the fiscal tools possible in charge of things, i.e. Congress, and not an unelected body with only one tool that sucks in charge of this. Dan, interesting take on the end the Fed. It's kind of end the Fed business as usual. So I appreciate that perspective. What's interesting is that, again, it all depends on the situation that we find ourselves in. One would think that an independent Fed in most cases is probably a good thing. It can act faster on its own without the concern that things are going to change at, at, you know, at the whim of Congress. 
you know, when Congress changes hands and the executive branch changes hands, now, of course, the, the chair does have to go through machinations to sort of serve at the pleasure uh, of the president. But I'm not sure that taking away independence from the Fed would help. I, You know, Elizabeth Warren kind of hit on this point where she said, you know, I think we just need other people in charge. Moreover, I don't necessarily know that something this specific should be an elected position. It's like having the EPA officials, elected officials. I'm not sure we want that either. It's bad enough that they get to be appointed whenever you get, you know, somebody like Trump in office. So I do think that there is a case for independence for the Fed in the way that they conduct themselves. But I also think that there's a case, as I said in the episode, that, you know, Joe Biden could do with channeling a little bit of Donald Trump here to put some pressure and put some heat on the Fed to say, you know, maybe you won't be in that seat for very long. You know, don't you raise rates anymore on my watch because the fix that they're looking for requires a fiscal intervention in order to actually attack what is arguably more than 50% of the reason, which is extreme corporate profits for inflation. And that more than 50% also has tributaries. There's more to that than just the hard and fast numbers behind what inflation is, is composed of. So, yeah, I, I think that there's, I think it's, it's okay to say that the Fed should be an independent body, but maybe we just need to look more closely at the pedigree of the people that are going to be in charge and get some different answers out of them. And if they don't get the right answers based upon the fiscal solutions that take more time to put in place, which is kind of the lesson here, right? That if everything had to go through Congress and everything had to go through the maneuvers that in a locked Congress as we have now, then we really wouldn't be getting anything done. So uh, unsure of how that would look, but I like the thought process behind it. Now, Mo D said, I love the three-part series. Thank you. Plus the epilogue about Jimmy Carter. Came across this today in the Times. And it, of course, is the article that we shared up top. So thank you, Mo D, for the for the symbiotic love there. Jerry W. said, I know little to nothing about how our government works. What books should I read to educate myself? Your top five would be a great start. Oh boy. Now we've done this before. You know, we've shared a lot of books on our bookshop.org. We've also shared a lot of listener recommendations on our bookshop. So the first thing I would do is go to our bookshop, which is bookshop.org slash UNFTRpod, and check out the series of books that we have there. In terms of specific books on how the government works, top of mind would be Kill Switch. That's Adam Gentleson. So Kill Switch goes through a number of the procedural quirks that we have in our democracy, really explains the filibuster, not only the origins of it, the weaponization of it by John C. Calhoun, uh, but the further weaponization of it through the period of Harry Reid being in charge of the Senate and, of course, now uh, through McConnell and uh, even how the Democrats have wielded it over time. So that's a really good one because it gets into some other things like the Electoral College and some other really important nuances. So in terms of how the government works, I think that's a really good primer. In terms of how our democracy has been assaulted, twisted and under attack for the past 50 years, there's a, a, a trio of books that I really love. It's uh, Nancy McLean's Democracy in Chains, Evil Geniuses by Kurt Anderson, and of course, Dark Money by Jane Mayer, which I have on the bookshelf behind me and try to keep with me at all time. I think Jane Mayer is still one of the best investigative reporters that we have in the United States, and she is a national treasure. So yeah, go to the bookshop. I would, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Howard Zinn's 
People's History of the United States, which just cut my eye back there as well. The others that I have on the books in the bookshop and you know behind me on on the bookshelf here are more related to specific areas of whether it's uh, culture, the economy, uh, the history of race in the United States and race relations in the United States. So there are great more nuanced takes, but just in terms of broad strokes for how the government works, those would be my recommendations. Now over on Facebook, Dan G said, very informative episode, a detailed yet succinct explanation on what the hell happened last week and an extremely helpful tool for those dunderheads who think wokeness caused this because Fox told them so. By the way, we're gonna do a video this week on woke. It's gonna be part of our series on right-wing tropes. So make sure to check that out when you get a chance. And Dan said, thank you for the arsenal of facts. Also, you outlined a great opportunity for a sketch, a congressional hearing about what happened. Many of the UNFTR fan favorites discussing what to ask. It's gold, Jerry, gold. That's gold, Jerry, gold. Yeah, maybe. Maybe you gotta figure out how to work that in there. Good stuff, Dan, appreciate you. Now. Over on YouTube, we had a lot of activity, as you might imagine. This first one, a little discussion between Lane Snedden and Jason Soares. Lane said, is this another case of socializing banking losses? So this is talking about the bank collapse one that we did. If so, are we back at another version of 2008? Jason Soares replied with, sort of. If FDIC costs go up, the banks will pass those costs to us, I figure. So it is interesting in that after 2008, and 2009 crash, uh, part of the Dodd-Frank regulations were the banks had to pay into a fund essentially to cover these types of losses. That's currently what's going on. Now, the wisdom here is that, well, the banks are then just going to jack fees, rates, be a little more reckless uh, in the future in order to try and make up the money that they otherwise have to pay into it. I heard Richard Wolf actually talk about that, Professor Rick Wolf. I don't necessarily ascribe to that, not that I don't think that banks are greedy and they're not going to try to take advantage of this somehow, but because on a wholesale basis across the entire banking system, what the banks are contributing to this is kind of a drop in the bucket. And you notice that that's really not what their problem was. The problem that the mid-level banks said that they had was that they had too many regulatory requirements. So part the other part of Dodd-Frank was a lot of auditors, a lot of regulations, a lot of red tape capital requirements, liquidity ratios, and all those kind of things that were extremely burdensome in their minds, in their estimation, to the operational procedures of the bank. Now, what I will say is that at the very, very low end of the banking spectrum, the really quality local community banks, the ones that serve a region, uh, maybe credit unions, although they have a different governing authority, those by charter tend to be a lot more responsible and onerous regulations were a big problem for many of them. Those were loosened over time. So they don't really have the problems that they had in the past. It's also, they're typically made up of depositors that would be under that $250,000 FDIC threshold. So uh, not as concerned about the lower end of it. That middle tier though, the ones that said, you know, between 50 and 250 billion, whatever their threshold was, that they needed to loosen their requirements and their regulations, that was super problematic because that's enough money, as we've seen, to really shake, shake the banking system to its core. So those were the regulations that were really loosened. I'm not sure that I agree necessarily with what Jason's saying about those costs being passed along to us. I think, you know, banks are assholes, just like every other, you know, capitalist enterprise in this country. And they'll try to exact as many you know fees from us as possible. 
but there is enough competition out there among the local banks on the community level and on the normal person level fighting for your business and fighting for your deposits that I don't think that we'll necessarily see a bleed through of fees. But then again, nothing would surprise me. So now Andrew F. and Mike S. both said that the music was too loud at the end of the bailout video. And I will pay closer attention to that when I went to listen back to it. You are 100% correct. So YouTube is something that I do. The difference in quality, as you might have already imagined, between the audio files that I send off to Manny and what comes back from him and what you find on YouTube is incredibly stark. There's a reason that Manny Faces is Manny Faces in the audio engineering world. He is incomparable in my estimation and knows exactly how to get this stuff right. I am learning from him. I take as many cues from him as possible, but I simply will never get to the point where I have mastered audio engineering to the degree that he has. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So for now, I'm just going to fucking turn it down. How about that? Just turn it down. It's ridiculous. Anyway, I agree. Now, Will, hold for it. I am William Wallace. Watkins. Notice that we used his portrayal of 99 in the new pod promo video that we put up on YouTube. Now, Will Watkins is a very, very talented individual. I mean, a very talented artist. So uh, I don't know, Will, how to share your work or where people can find it or if that's even something that you want. But uh, as I'm looking at you and as I'm speaking to you right now, if you want to share your work out there so people can see what a great artist you are, that would be amazing. So his depiction of 99 as the, the warrior standing with her fist in the air and sword in hand was the one that I used in the video because I'm not allowed to use any likenesses of 99 because I'm terrified of her. And she said, I can't. So there you go. And Sam Chen said, wow, more people need to hear your message. Have you ever thought of working with more perfect union? That would be amazing. If anybody knows them, send them my way. I don't know anybody over there. I know Brian Tyler Cohen has a partnership with them. I see them do a number of other things. It's a very, very, very good outlet. I don't know if I've reached the uh, the threshold to get anybody's attention at that level, but uh, that would be super cool. And so thank you for pointing that out, Sam. I appreciate it. And as far as coffee donations, Dieter K bought three coffees. Three coffees for Max to add bourbon to as he ponders Edwin Diaz. Damn it. And why baseballers still celebrate by jumping up and down. Dieter, killing me. Now, that one hurts. So, obviously, those of you who know me know that I am a huge Mets fan and know that I am undeterred in making this claim. Same claim that I've made since 1987. This is our year. Closer, no closer, doesn't matter. We'll just pitch through it. The Mets are going to win the World Series this year. Put it in the box! Now, have I eaten my words every year since 1987? <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure I have. But that's the plight of a Mets fan. We're devoted. We believe. I mean, believe more than Ted Lasso believes. We, we believe. It's in our DNA. It's in our souls. The triumph, my friends, is in the struggle. So I appreciate the backhanded coffee. For those of you that haven't gotten your new blend, you can hear I'm shaking some beans on the mic. You can see it in the, in the camera here. Get yourself some delicious Unfuck your morning, unfuck your afternoon, a decaffeinated unfucking, my personal favorite, Mellow Maynard. 
let's keep the memberships rolling in. Maybe I can, you know, afford to hire a video editor at some point so that my videos don't suck so bad with bad music choices and things like that. Who knows? Anyway, 99 will be back next week in the studio with me. We're going to try to film these so she'll be in the studio and you'll get a sense that she's here. She'll be off camera, but on mic. We've got a couple of good things coming up on YouTube this week. We have uh, a new, as I told you, we've got uh, a new installment to our Right Wing Trope series. We've got an, another new playlist feature called What Is, where we're going to be going back through history and describing important events or policies or papers or ideas through history. And uh, another one that we're going to resurface from way back in the beginning of the pod about Ayn Rand, wondering and pondering why objectivism is still a thing and all of the deleterious effects that have spawned from her worldview, which is just bizarre. So for now, my friends, that's it. I hope this experiment works out. I hope you bear with me and um, can't wait to have 99 back in the studio. Going to package all this up, send it off to the great Manny Faces, and it'll come back really nicely in your earbuds if you're listening to the podcast, and it'll be what it'll be on YouTube. Take care, unfuckers. fuckers.